Our Father, we do praise you for every single word of your word. We praise you that you speak to us. We praise you that you don't keep us in the dark. And we ask, Lord, for your help as we study this dense and difficult passage. We pray, Lord, that you would bring it to bear on our lives. Show us ourselves in it. And show us our wonderful Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, let me just put that down. Well, tonight we've got the the last words of Stephen's life. He is the first Christian martyr, and he's the preacher of the longest sermon in Acts. So hopefully we won't go too long. Um, Our last words, they really do uh, reveal what has been important to us, don't they? They reveal what's been important to us, and they reveal what hope we have beyond the grave. You see, the gospel... The gospel of Jesus transforms both our life, what is important in this life, and it transforms our hope beyond the grave. The great man, Sir Winston Churchill, with all that he achieved in his life, on his deathbed, could only say this, I'm convinced that there is no hope. A sad place to be, yeah? You see, the gospel shapes both the way we live And the way we approach death. The preacher Richard Baxter said, I have pain, but I have peace. I have peace. And John Knox, a preacher, said said these as his last words. Live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. Don't you just want these as your last words? Live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death death. The gospel of Jesus gives us great hope in this life and great hope for after death. The trouble is, is that when we try to live in Christ and die in Christ, there is great pressure from the world to live in this world rather than in Christ. Because being too serious about Jesus is not the done thing, is it? Speaking about Jesus is socially awkward, isn't it? You can be passionate about any number of things. I was once sat on a train and a bloke sat down next to me with this massive uh, uh, carved wooden mask of some goat thing. He was passionate about wood carving. You can be passionate about that and sit on a train with this obscure thing and no one bats an eyelid. But be passionate about Jesus and you suddenly become a fundamentalist. Uh, You're a bigot, you're close-minded, you are judgmental. And the danger of that pressure for the Christian is that it will cause us to keep our heads down, to keep our mouths shut, to go hard on the career path and soft for the kingdom of Jesus. Tim Chester in The Ordinary Hero, it's a great book if you haven't read it, uh, says this little paragraph... Um, He says, someone mentioned on the phone to me recently the death from from cancer of a prominent Christian leader in his 50s. She described it as a tragedy. But his death wasn't a tragedy. It was certainly a loss to his family, his friends, and to the wider church. But it wasn't a tragedy. It was gain. Let me tell you what is a tragedy. Someone who gets a good education, secures a well-paid job, buys a house in a nice area, marries and has children, and ensures his children get a good education, 
So the cycle can begin again. Someone who treats Christ as a hobby or an insurance against hell. Someone who leaves behind a rusting car and children who've been trained to be self-indulgent. Someone with no gospel legacy. That's the tragedy. That's what the pressure from the world can cause, can't it? Now, if you're feeling that pressure from the world this evening, if you're on that road, take heart because you are not alone. Luke has written Acts in his two-volume gospel to Christians like us, living in a world like ours, living lives like ours. See, the first century Christians that Luke was writing to, uh, Christianity was seen as this weird sect. Taking Jesus seriously was socially unacceptable. And the teaching of Jesus was politically incorrect. It's politically incorrect as it is today. And Luke's purpose in writing Acts is to give his readers confidence. That's what he tells Theophilus in Luke chapter 1 verse 3. He writes to give him and to give us confidence in life amongst a hostile world. And to give us confidence in death with all the uncertainty the world has about that. Tonight we get this great glimpse of the convictions that drove Stephen in his life and in his death as he sought to follow his precious Jesus. And Stephen gives us great confidence from this spirit-inspired, wisdom-soaked, angel-faced speech. It's amazing. But we need to remember that Stephen isn't this pin-up figure. He isn't a cardboard cutout. He is an ordinary Christian like you and me. He lived for Jesus, he spoke in Jesus, and he died in Jesus. We're meant to look at this incident and see how he lived in Jesus and died in Jesus. Luke has recorded it in such a way that we are meant to see his death in Jesus as very similar to Jesus. His trial is very similar to Jesus. I wonder whether you spotted that as, as the Duttons read out the passage. We met Stephen last week, didn't we? He was one of the seven blokes given the waiting gig to give out the daily distribution. And we were told in, in chapter 6 that Stephen was chosen because he was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. His life is gripped by the gospel. And it affects every bit of his life. You see, he wasn't just satisfied with handing a few bits of bread out and a bit of money out. He wanted to talk about Jesus. Just have a look at six, chapter 6, verse 8. Uh, uh, Luke tells us that Stephen was performing great wonders and signs among the people as he was waiting on tables. You wouldn't want him to be a barista, would he? Because at chapter 6, verse 9, he is debating with the Jews around the place. His life is gripped by Jesus. The followers of Jesus have been devoting themselves to the daily reading of Scripture and to prayer, and he is gripped by Jesus. But by verse 12, his life gripped by Jesus takes him into a trial before the Sanhedrin. That's the highest religious court in the country. He's been arrested by these people from the Freedmen's Synagogue. 
They are Jews who are freed slaves and they have taken it upon themselves to disagree with and debate with Stephen and they take him to the Sanhedrin and we get this courtroom trial. That's what our passage is, is this, our passage is this evening. There is a defence, there, there is evidence, there is a defence and there's a sentence. Just look at the evidence. It's there in verse 11, 13 and 14. We get these three pairs of charges and these three pairs increase in severity and exaggeration. So just look at verse 11. Then they persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Then it steps up again, verse 13. This man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and against the Lord. And then it steps up again, verse 14. For we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Do you see the escalation? Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. See, Stephen, in these, uh, uh, in these um, charges, he starts off as a loudmouth waiter and he ends up a full-on terrorist set on blowing up the temple. Now, we don't get the significance of him threatening, threatening to destroy the temple. The temple and the law were the epicenter of the Jewish religion. If you, wanna, if you wanted to meet God, you went to the temple. If you wanted to hear from God, you needed to listen to and obey God's law. It's difficult to, to sense the offence here. But he really brasses them off, doesn't he? They end up pummeling him with stones until he's dead. So charge really is, uh, you are anti-temple, you are anti-law, and therefore you are anti-God. And Pete, uh, Stephen's sermon takes up uh, the, the answer to that question in verse 1. Is it true? We get the, the longest sermon in Acts. And, and Stephen's defense is not so much a, I'm an innocent man, look at the evidence, let me disprove it. It's not so much that kind of a defense. It's more of a, you are the guilty ones defense. I'm not guilty, you are the guilty ones. As he turns the tables on his accusers. Uh, We get two threads running through this defense as he tackles both these charges. You are anti-temple and anti-law. And so we'll look at those charges in turn. So, charge one, you are anti-temple. And what Stephen does is he calls up his witnesses, one after another, and he calls up all these dead guys. Abraham, Joseph and the patriarchs, Moses, David and Solomon. At verse two, he calls up Abraham. Just look at uh, verse two, two with me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. I've been practicing saying that word. I cannot say it. Look, Alfred. Where is that place? Anyone know? It is a long way from Jerusalem. That's all you need to know. Google, uh, you can Google it and it will tell you it's about 1,200 kilometres. It's about the distance from Adelaide to Sydney without Tiger Airways. Uh, you see, uh, um, what, uh, uh, and then he says, uh, uh, he, he says verse 4, uh, that Abraham was from Chaldea. 
And that didn't bother God. Anyone know where Chaldea is? It's even further from Jerusalem. Uh, it's in Saudi Arabia, is that right? Saudi Arabia? Um, God uh, met with Abraham outside of Jerusalem before... Sorry, it's not, in, it's not in Saudi Arabia. It's up in the north of Iraq. Iran, Iraq, yeah? Midian is in Saudi Arabia, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a long way from Jerusalem. That's all we need to know. And that is the point that Stephen is making. That God met Abraham when he was nowhere near Jerusalem. When there wasn't a temple built. Then he calls uh, the Joseph and the patriarchs, verse 9. He says, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. Do you see, do you notice the repetition of Egypt in verses 9 to 16? Do you see it? Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. Six times he mentions Egypt. Stephen is making the point that Joseph didn't need to be anywhere near a temple for God to be with him. For God to rescue him. God didn't need Joseph to be in the same country as a temple would be built. He just needed God. Uh, he just needed God with him. God appeared to him. Next up is Moses, and Moses gets more t- airtime because he's mentioned in the initial charges. Uh, verse twenty-one. We learn that Moses was raised in Egypt as an Egyptian. Verse twenty-nine. Moses was is banished from Egypt and where does God meet Moses? Does he meet him in the temple? He meets him at a burning bush, verse 30, in Midian, which is in Saudi Arabia. He meets him in the wilderness on a mountain. There's no temple, there's no Jerusalem, miles away from Canaan and yet look at verse 33. Look what the Lord says to him. Remove the sandals from your feet For the place where you are standing is holy ground. The Lord doesn't need a temple for there to be holy ground. In case we're not getting it, we learn that in uh, verse 36, that Moses does signs and wonders, rescues the Israelites from Egypt, and gives them the law in the wilderness. There's no Jerusalem. There's no temple. Moses hasn't even been to, to Jerusalem. And Stephen is making the point time and time again that God does not need a temple. God does not need a land. Stephen carries on building his wall of evidence using King David and King Solomon. They are at the planner and the builder of the temple. So we're getting our hopes that maybe he's going to mention the temple. But he says, even they knew, verse 48, that the Most High, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. Where does God live? Heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. Stephen is saying to these pro-temple Sanhedrin, that the Lord cannot and will not be boxed up in a temple. Going to the temple to meet God is like going to Gracelands to get a live concert from Elvis. God doesn't need it. To meet with God, you don't go to a place, you go to a person. And Stephen's answer to that is Jesus. 
God does not live in the temple. He lives by his spirit in Christ's people. Do you see the irony of this trial? Stephen is a thousand more times temple than any one of the Jews he was, uh, he, 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 any one of the Jews that were accusing him. Because sat before them was a man possessed by the living God, with the spirit of God living in him. That's what we're meant to get when we get uh, the mention of his angel face in 6 verse 15. It's a lovely little detail, isn't it? 6 verse 15, his angel face. And Stephen says to them, you've got it wrong. You've boxed up the unboxable God. He does not live in a building. He lives in his people by his spirit. Well, I wonder what, if Stephen was with us tonight, I wonder what he would say to us. He'd probably say to us, do you know that God does not live in a church building? You do know that, don't you? You know that uh, we meet God not in a place, but in the person of Jesus. You do know that, don't you? Now, for some of us, that will be uh, news to us. That there are no holy places. We meet God in the person of Jesus. And that is the holy place. Well, some of us uh, will be going, of course we know that. We know that God does not live in a place. He lives in the person of Jesus and he lives in his uh, followers by his spirit. We know that. We are well taught church by the bridges. But what would Stephen say to you and me? You know that. But why then do you still box God up? Why do you put your life into compartments and allow God to possess just a couple of those compartments? Why do you restrict God to Sunday at church and Tuesday or Wednesday evening at Hive Group? Why do you evict God from your office? Why do you evict God from certain relationships? Why do you call on God in times of crisis? but evict him from your decision-making process. Do you know that God does not live in a place, but in a person of Jesus Christ? See, if we, have, uh, if we trust in Jesus, he is living in us 24-7 by his Spirit. And we shouldn't box him up. Well, charge two, you are anti-law. And we'll look at that one much more briefly. Uh, Stephen again turns the tables on the Sanhedrin uh, by taking them through the Old Testament again, Old Testament history, digging up dead guys, showing them that they're wrong. And he says, just as God never lived in the temple, so Israel, God's people, have always rejected God's word and always rejected God's messengers. So verse 27, he says that Moses was rejected in Egypt before the big rescue. And he was also rejected after the big rescue. So in, before the big rescue, the Israelites say to him, verse 7, verse 27, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? And as they've seen God do these miraculous signs and wonders, apart the sea to let them get out of Egypt... And get into desert as Moses is up on the mountain getting the law. 
they build a golden calf, verse 41, and reject that very word that has just been given to them. And now Stephen uh, points the finger to them and says, you are just like that. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, so do you. He's not being polite. He's talking to this religious elite, the holy ones, the nice ones, and he's calling them pagan fools. Think of the rudest word you can, and that is what he's calling them. He's telling them, the people who love the law, who love the temple, your hearts resist God, and your ears shut God's word out. Just as your ancestors rejected God and his word, so you are guilty of the same crime. You can feel the awkwardness, can't you? You can see why they're annoyed as well. Verse 54, they gnashed their teeth. Ivana, I was really hoping that you would gnash your teeth. Uh, what does gnashing your teeth sound like? It's not very nice, is it? At the same time, you can kind of think, well, Stephen, why didn't you just keep your head down? Why didn't you just uh, uh, say uh, yes or no when they asked you, is it true? You know, mumble uh, one word like we do when we're under pressure. You, You kind of think, why didn't you just run for it? I'm sure it crossed his mind. And the same temptation crosses our minds time and time again. But the reason he didn't keep quiet is the same reason that he gets killed. Because he knows and loves Jesus. If Moses was alive, Stephen says, he would say, Jesus. Verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. He said to Sanhedrin, listen to Jesus. In fact, verse 52, if any of the Old Testament prophets were alive, they would say, listen to Jesus. They announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. See, Stephen is convinced that Jesus is both God's temple and God's law. That if you want to meet with God, you need to go to Jesus. If you want to hear from God, you need to go to Jesus. And the sad irony is that as Stephen speaks, ringing in their ears are the very words of God. As he unpacks God's word for them, delivered by this spirit-filled, angel-faced servant and messenger Stephen. And yet, verse 53, you received the law under the direction of angels and have not kept it. It's really very sad. The culmination of God's plan. To bring, uh, to bring God to his people, to bring his word to his people, is before their very faces. And yet they reject it. Well, I wonder again, what would Stephen say to us if he was with us tonight? I think he might say to us Christians, do you know what walks through your door, in your shoes, into your office every Monday morning? Do you know that a spirit-filled, angel-faced messenger of the good news of Jesus walks through the doors of your reception every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning? Do you know that God's Spirit has perfectly and adequately equipped you to take Jesus into your workplace, 
to the school gate, into the coffee shop, onto the train. Christian, do you know that when you speak up for Jesus on the train, at the gym, at the school gate, you are doing a Stephen? If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you. You can open your Bibles and hear the very voice of God. As you speak the gospel of Jesus, you are speaking the very words of God. You are doing a Stephen. You are a Stephen. You can change your name if you like. Let's all change our name to Stephen. You are a spirit-filled messenger, angel-faced of the risen, risen Lord Jesus. Sent by God so that people will meet God in Jesus. So that they will hear the voice of God in Jesus. This is the plan of God. This is what biblical history is all about. So that you can take the presence and the word of God into your office on a Monday morning. So that you can, on the train, stand on holy ground. As you hear the voice of God, as he addresses you personally. It's a weird thing, isn't it? That we sit on a train, open our Bibles, and hear the voice of God. You are Stephen. You are Stephen with the hope of Stephen. Just look at the, this is beautiful, look at the hope that every Christian has. Verse 55. But Stephen filled by the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Do you know what uh, Jesus normally does when he is at the right hand of God? He's normally seated, isn't he? Here Jesus stands up and says, welcome home. Well done, good and faithful servant. See, this is temple language. He sees God's glory. That's where the temple was where God's glory was. And the hope is, and it's a great hope, that we will see what Stephen sees. We will meet God face to face one day if we trust Jesus. I don't know how God is going to take you home. He will take us home. It might be sooner than we expected. It might be longer than we hoped. But look at the hope we have in verse 56. Look, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. See, Stephen's put all his chips on Jesus. And he's won the jackpot. Son of Man with all authority in heaven and on earth. Given to us by his Spirit. Stephen knew that he was in control of everything. He knew that he could not keep quiet because the news of Jesus was so good. And he knows who he belongs to. And so he can face anything. The church of Jesus wasn't crushed by persecution. It grew in chapter 8. It grew and furthered God's plan. Wouldn't it be great if we trusted Jesus and knew who he was And looked at the hope that we have. And so the plan of God, the news of Jesus would spread from here to the ends of Sydney. To the ends of the earth. Because we lived in Jesus and know that we will die in Jesus. Look how he dies. Verse 60. He turns his back on the false temple. And he turns his face to the true temple. And he falls asleep. Praying for forgiveness of his murderers. 
He knows that Jesus is his saviour. He knows that Jesus is his judge. He knows that Jesus is his king and his temple. And it's a wonderful hope that we have. It's a wonderful hope and wonderful news that we take into the office, into the schoolyard, onto the train this Monday morning. Live in Christ, die in Christ, and not fear anything in the flesh. It's wonderful hope, isn't it? Let's pray that.